Wow, it is a blessing to be before you. And I just want to thank um, Pastor Andrina for creating this, this space um, for each person every week to lean into their gifts. You didn't give us a script to say, somebody said to me, well, don't you have like a certain thing you got to talk about? I said, no, Pastor just said, use what the Lord has given you. Um, and do it in a way that feels best suited for the gifts he's given you, right? So I'm, I'm not a preacher. I'm a min- We're all ministers of the word, but I'm a teacher. So I'm going to bring you a little PowerPoint today. <laughs> I said, I got my three S strategy. We got stories, scriptures, and statistics, right? Um, to, try to, to try to illuminate the, the issue that the Lord has placed on my heart. Um, and again, I thank you for creating that space for those of us to use our gifts in different ways in this community. Um, our, our speaker last week really set the stage in a beautiful way, laid the table out for um, helping us to lean into God's call for um, economic justice. And so I feel like that was an invitation, and I'm hoping today to bring you all an application, um, just to go a little bit deeper um, into what the Lord has placed on my heart. So, you know, as I think about just the call for economic justice, it's always been in my life. Um, Growing up as a young child, uh, some of you know my mom and how wonderful she is. We always had uh, people in our home that we were serving. We always had um, opportunities to lean into communities in ways that felt very authentic. I don't ever remember it feeling like we were just um, inhabiting a place for, for the purposes of um, you know, trying to tell somebody how to change their life. It was like, we're going there to learn and, be, and walk alongside. And even though I didn't know all of the terminology that I now know as a professor, I knew that that's how it felt uh, to do the work well. And, you know, fast forward several years to when Jermaine and I, um, after living in New York and pursuing graduate school, moved to D.C., that was kind of the first time that I feel like I got an understanding of some of the shortcomings of the church, the collective church, in terms of serving um, the marginalized, serving those who are disenfranchised, um, and looking at and really reflecting on the ways that, that we can all do better. Um, so Jermaine and I were attending this, this church, a uh, very well-known pastor, written lots of books, and, and I'm not here to call him out because I think he's done some better stuff in the recent years, but... Um, we were, would enter into this space, uh, the church was held in a movie theater, and this was before uh, churches were kind of held in trendier places, so that was kind of cool for us back, we're going back 20 years, my friends, um, and we were literally walking and, and tripping over unhoused individuals as we were going into church, and I remember thinking immediately, there's something that just is not settling in my spirit right here. How are we seeing these people who God loves, who God treasures, who, has, who have no home, who have no food, who are begging just to enter into the sanctuary and have some coffee and donuts, and they're kind of being, it's like the gates were being closed, you know. They're out here, we're here. Um, and Jermaine and I immediately went into action. We're like, no, 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 this is not okay. So we began feeding them and just providing some kind of cold weather-related items for the winter that was coming. And we thought, well, we, we want to do more. Uh, let's, let's talk to the pastor. Surely he wants to do more. Maybe he just hasn't had people that, are, that have had that desire on their heart. Well, that was not what it was. And I remember him saying something to the effect of, if we start feeding them, then they'll want to come in. And I was like, but that, that's, that's what we want to do. <laughs> Sustenance and spiritual food, that's what we're about, right? Um. And, and, and again, not to get into all the details of that story, but it, it, it showed me a lot of how the church, maybe at best, takes a very person focus, like, we'll pray for you from a distance, um, or, you know, 
uh, we want you to kind of better your circumstances on your own, right? Not, not taking like a systemic view. And, and Jermaine and I, through the relationships that we built with our friends, you know, where we were able to, to get one individual into um, a rehab center and some other things. So it became really caring about the depths of their story, right? Their, their life. Like what are those barriers that they face to be able to, to create better outcomes for themselves? And you know, again, it was this reckoning with the church of why are, we, why are we struggling to see people's dignity and humanity, right? Jesus sees this throughout scripture and in these individuals. Um, and I felt like this, this story uh, was all too common at that time of our life. Um, we had, there's a fear, I think, in the church that it's gonna cost us financially and emotionally. What if people take advantage of us, right? Um, and the Lord asks us to use wisdom and discernment. It's not as if we're just, you know, doing things without uh, prayer and without guidance. But um, I think that God is also inviting us into something more. So um, if you don't mind, uh, oh, I guess I, can you, oh, slides aren't, okay, they're coming. I told you I had my little PowerPoint. Um, I, can, I can just start talking, that's fine. Um, <laughs> I wanted to kind of help us, a little, okay, yeah, this is, this is, this is the title. See, I started talking before we even got to the title. Um, we're we're going to look at a passage today in Scripture uh, that I believe the church often gets wrong um, in terms of how it's interpreted, and, and we'll dive deep into that. But I, these were two quotes that really just kind of stood out to me as I think about the work of economic justice. And again, places that the church and, and the world oftentimes get wrong, right? We often do the inverse of the first. We fight the poor, not poverty, Right? We, go, we go against individuals who are struggling and not systems that are oppressing. Um, and I love this other one. When I, when I feed the hungry, they call me a saint. When I ask why people are hungry, they call me a communist. Right? I, and I, I have been, I've been called that several times. That's okay. Uh, and, and, and I think it's important to, to ask why the church does the first part, part well, in some ways, right? We have, and I'm not talking necessarily, Strong Tower does so many things well. I'm talking about the collective church, the international church, the international body of believers that is quick to rush and perhaps provide, you know, momentary uh, relief, right? Whether that's through missions and other things. And again, not looking down on that. But when we, we try to, you know, go upstream, as Chris mentions to us many times, we're questioned, right? Like, is that really our role, right? When we're trying to get at the causes, at the root, right, to see how we can bear better fruit, then we're, we're called other things and we're told that, you know, there's a, a, a movement of, of social justice as if that's a, a bad word, right? And I'm so thankful for this church because that's not how we operate. We operate in not only just doing the tangible serving, but also looking at what the root causes are, looking at those systems um, that have made life pretty difficult for folks. So before we dive into scripture, again, I told you statistics, stories, and scriptures, I want to look at just a little bit of research because I think it's important to think about where do we stand in terms of some of our biases about the poor and about the system of poverty, right? Where do we come at this? Um, maybe that's a result of our socialization of where we grew up, um, of the messaging that we receive from our hometown, from our family, 
Um, and I, I do want to say that there are some folks here listening online and here in the body who are struggling financially right now. And I, I want to honor that. And I want to honor the, the, the reality of what that is. And not, I'm not coming in here as an expert to speak about that. But I'm trying to help and guide us through ways that we can respond with more care um, and more compassion. And I'm so sorry these words are not as clear as they were in front of me. But there's kind of five frames, I think, that the church and I think the world, and again, we're, we're supposed to be different from the world, uh, views as they think about people who are economically marginalized. You know, for some of us, um, it's this idea that people from low-income backgrounds have personal faults that have caused them to live in, live in poverty. How many times have we heard that? If you just did this better, if you made this better decision, you know, your circumstance would be different. Um, this, this notion that folks are less hardworking or uninterested in self-improvement, which could not be farther than the truth. I could sit up here for hours and tell you stories. I've got an amazing mama who I love so much sitting in the front row of the hard work, the seeds that are sown for a better life, for, to change generations, literally to break generational curses. But a lot of times that hard work doesn't always pay and it doesn't always provide that outcome that we would love to see for people. The second thing that I think our political system, and again, many people kind of believe and practice is this idea that, you know, this, this myth of meritocracy, and there's a whole article about, just basically entitled that, the myth of meritocracy, this kind of so-called American dream, right? This pull yourself up from the bootstraps, right? We've all heard that. And I always say, what about for babies? Can they pull themselves up from their booty straps? They really can't, right? <laughs> Those who are not able to speak for themselves don't ha even have the bootstraps to pull themselves up from. But there's this idea that, you know, if you are in poverty, you're not working hard enough, right? That you can, anyone can escape. And we love to um, flash sometimes these individuals before, you know, the, when we used to sit down and watch like the nightly news, we'd have like, you know, the story of the individual who grew up in the community who's made it out. And sometimes while those stories are amazing, I'm not discrediting them, it doesn't always get into all the layers that allowed that person to succeed, right? Um, there's a great TED Talk later on if you call The Danger of a Single Story, if you haven't seen it already, but sometimes those single stories are what people like to, to cling to to say, well, if this person did it, why can't everybody else in that community? Not looking at all of the factors and facets that contributed to that person's ability to achieve that upward mobility. Um, and again, it's not that we're discrediting those stories, those rags to riches stories, but it's not enough. It's incomplete, right? And then the third kind of frame um, is the idea around really criticizing the, the, the system of welfare, right? People taking advantage of this social safety net for their own gain. We can all go on YouTube and find the videos of, you know, somebody ranting about, oh, I got this and I took advantage. And, and we love to kind of like plaster those, those stories, again, that are not indicative of the millions of people who receive benefits and are good stewards of those benefits. But we like to cling on to these sound bites Right? And then they form a whole narrative that a lot of people have about economically marginalized individuals. Um, you know, we, we drive through communities in particular zip codes and we form very broad stereotypes about those communities without getting to know the people who are there. Um, and, I, and I tell my students this all the time, you know, because they're teaching it in a lot of these communities and they're, they're frightened to go into these communities. I said, well, do, do, you know, do you know the stories? Do you know the families? Do you know the amazing people who are doing great community work in these zip codes? Certainly, if you just look at uh, 
statistics or a story here and there, you're going to have an incomplete view of an entire community. Um, and so it's important, again, to go deeper, uh, to, to look at a system like welfare that actually does not help people achieve upward mobility, and we'll look at that in a second, but to recognize that for, for, for millions of people, it is a lifeline. You know, when COVID benefits rolled back and people were getting uh, less food stamps and less support with housing, we saw millions of people fall into severe poverty in this country. Um, just this week, I don't know if y'all caught it in the news, four million people were let go of Medicaid who were eligible because of some paperwork snafu. I mean, we read these numbers and we think, well, we've got a statistic of 38 million people who live in poverty in this country, and it's easy to get overwhelmed by the magnitude of it and not to lean into what is God asking me to do in my sphere of influence, right? We did this, we did this yesterday, um, and as my daughter and I were walking folks out yesterday with uh, you know, big um, cartons of food and everything, it was so great. We were walking out a mom with her three kids. She was so precious because she, she was trying to juggle all this stuff. I said, honey, I know you juggle a lot every day. Let me, let's help you here. And I said, well, did you get everything that you need today um, at the Bless Fest? And she said, I got so many great things, but, you know, I still need school uniforms. So we exchanged numbers, and her, little, her friend was walking by. I need them too. So I got her number. And, you know, people say, like, where, where, do, you, where do you meet these moms if we just ask the Lord to give us the eyes to see, people will come to us. And I don't mean that in like a voyeuristic, like, oh, let's just go seek out people. God will bring you people who you are there to encourage. And it doesn't have to be that they're necessarily asking for you to buy them something, right? It might just be, I need a word of encouragement, like we all do. I just need somebody to see me, right? I need somebody to recognize that in my circumstance, something might get better because someone cares. Um, one of the moms I work with recently said to me, she was telling her, her uh, employer about just, you know, our relationship and, and, and how much we love each other and, and, and the friendship. And I always tell people it's mutual aid. It is not um, somebody going in to just help moms. It's, it's relational. And, and, and that's, that's what it's all about. And her, her boss said, so I don't understand. This lady just does these things for you. What does she want in return? Um, and the mom paused for a minute, and she said, well, nothing. We're, we're friends. Like, we just love each other. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus' heart, right? He wants us, but he's not asking for, for certain things to, to match up to what he gives us, right? It's not a, a measuring stick. And I think we forget about that oftentimes. Again, using discernment and wisdom when we work with any of God's people, but not always looking for, you know, going and assuming that there's this spirit of taking advantage or somebody's going to get me. And so I'm going to avoid that, right? We sort of look at maybe the exception and then we say, well, because of that exception, I'm not going to do it. And, and we avoid really being part of such a beautiful community. When people ask me, what, what are the anchors for me moving here from New York eight years ago? It's Strong Tower and it's my community in Nashville. A little bit in Franklin, you know, where I live. But those are the, those are the, uh, those are the anchors for me, right? And that's how I, I build community is just the, the amazing women that I get to connect with um, and, and learn from every day. Um, and then finally, these last two kind of common biases, paternalism and fatalism. And I want to just, I'm going to uh, skip over the, the fourth one because I think we kind of touched on it. But the last one really leads into our scripture for today um, this idea that because poverty is a fact of modern developed economies, there's little that anyone can do about it, right? We've heard that, like, it's so overwhelming, surely what can I do, right? We even look at that scripture that we're going to look at in a minute of the poor will always be with us, 
right? If that's, if that's just a, a, a natural part of living in, in our world, then what can we do? Um, and so I want to invite us into what Jesus asks us to be a part of, which is his upside-down kingdom. I know we've talked about that before here at Strong Tower, but what I love about this is everything that the world would say has value or importance, right? Um, Jesus would offer us a different way. So even things like, and I'm not trying to ruffle any feathers here, but a lot of, I hear this all the time recently, well, you should just do what makes you happy. And, and I actually got a tattoo on my arm to remind myself to do what makes you holy, right? Jesus is calling us into the way of holiness. What is happiness? I mean, yes, he wants us to have moments, he wants us to, to have peace and joy and contentment. But happiness seems very self-serving, right, oftentimes. And, and the world does that very well. It tells us to, you know, get a bigger car, get a bigger house, you know, possess more. What vacation are you taking? You know, how is that better than your neighbor's? Or how is that better than, next, than last year's vacation? And there's nothing wrong with nice things. I'm not saying that. But again, Jesus welcomes us into his kingdom, which values things that are so much deeper. Um, it says, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repentant soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place of vision. So I think about... How can we challenge ourselves to these practices, not just these words, but these practices every day um, in the spheres of influence, in the spaces that the Lord has uniquely placed each of us? There are over 2,000 scriptures um, about the poor in the Bible, over 2,000. I mean, that's amazing. You think about that, y'all. Jesus cared so much and in so many ways, and there was so much... Um, instruction and guidance around how we treat the poor, how we view it from a systemic level, how we should um, carry out our works as a believer. Um, I think about uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 7. I think about the Beatitudes, um, Jesus declaring several different types of people as being blessed or happy, the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart. Um, I think about two passages in Proverbs that really give us instruction about how we treat the poor and how the Lord sees us in terms of our actions when we do that. It says in Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Insult so you're not only just being wrong in that moment, you're insulting Jesus when you are not kind, when you are not offering dignity and care and compassion. Proverbs 28, 27, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Think about all of the times we have hidden our eyes. I mean, again, I'm pointing a thumb right here. You know, when if I dri driven past or walked past or averted my gaze because it's just too much right now, I can't handle it. And again, I'm not saying that the Lord calls us to react to every crisis, right? We have to use wisdom and discernment. I get probably three to four texts or messages a day about crisis situations, and I wish I could respond to all of them, and I can't. And so it's, it's not, God doesn't want us to grow weary in well-doing either, right? But 
I think there's a challenge for each of us to think about when we have turned away out of convenience, out of that desire to make ourselves happy and not holy, um, that we need to kind of press into a little bit more. So my teachers out here will appreciate this paradigm, right? In school, we do this thing called I do, you do, we do, right? Teachers know what I'm talking about? So I'm going to challenge the body of Christ to an I do, you do, we do, right? The I do is, this is me, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a word today, I'm giving you a word today. The you do is, what are you taking from that word personally? What is the Lord writing on your heart? What is the, the message that he is giving you to walk out the door with and to think about, not just in words, but in actions? And the we do is our collective body of Christ, that strong tower at the, you know, the, the, the broader church, wherever we represent, we are already doing a lot, but what are, what are some ways that we can go even deeper collectively as a body? So I do, you do, we do, right? It's a great family practice too on things too. So you can steal that little, little tidbit. Um, so I want to look at today a couple of passages of scripture from the, the New Testament and the Old Testament. For many of you, these are not new passages of scripture, but I hope to illuminate some new truths from them today. And I think that's what God does so well that we can read the same thing over and over again and get new pearls of wisdom from that word, right? Um, As we have new hearts and minds uh, to see it and hear it. So this first passage in Matthew 26, 6 through 13, commonly known as Jesus anointing at Bethany. Um, So I'm just gonna read it for us Aloud, and you can see it on the screen. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. The perfume could have been sold at a higher price than the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me, right? So again, I think a lot of people hear that scripture and say, yes, first and foremost, we are honoring Christ. And this woman honored him in a way that was even beyond her means, right? A way of sacrifice, a way of of really um, reverence towards his holiness, but we kind of stop there. We're like, well, the poor will always be with you, right? So, so Jesus said it, and that's a fact of life. Again, that fatalistic view we just saw on the last screen. But I believe that Jesus is calling us into something much deeper. Um, if you then think about the passage in Deuteronomy, um, which is where this passage in, Mark, uh, in Matthew has come from, um, Jesus reminds us again that the poor you will always have with you, and then added... Um, but you do not always have me. In doing this, Jesus has made two points. He reminded his disciples that his time with them would soon come to an end. He also condemned the disciples' greed by pointing them back to God's command that if they provide justice for the poor, then they are doing his work and his will. Um, I think it's so important to think about just the passages. Again, over 2,000 passages in Scripture that call us into this work. Um, I also think about in Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11, verse 10, um, it talks about not doing so, not, not giving with a grudging heart. Um, and I think about that a lot. Like, what are our intentions? Because the Lord sees through that, right? There are times when 
we are doing good work on the surface, but our heart is filled with rot, right? We are still like, I don't really want to feed this person. You know, I don't really want to help them. Like, why can't they help themselves? You know, um, I don't understand why this person's calling me again for help. Like, what the hell? You know, whether it's somebody, a whole host of issues, not just related to economic justice, but our heart is still in the wrong place. And so on the surface, it looks like you're doing something to help, that's nice, but your soul is still wrestling. Um, And so I want us to think about that. How do we get to a place where our heart is open and filled with compassion, filled with mercy, the same type of mercy and compassion that the Lord gives to us. He doesn't say, you've asked me this again and roll in his eyes in heaven, you know. You just, you just asked me that this morning, why, why again, right? Now, he might challenge us to say, why are you, you know, what have you done in between those two asks? But he's not looking at us in anger or bitterness or with a grud, you know, begrudging spirit or a judgmental spirit, definitely not. So how do we get more like that? And I think... That, to me, is where uh, the collective church really needs to kind of look inside, right, um, to look at, at the intention, at not only the what we're doing, but why are we doing it, and how are we doing it? Are we offering people dignity? Are we offering people love in the midst? Um, do, we feel, do people who are on the receiving end of things feel like they're an annoyance? That should not be the case, right? They should feel so... Um, honored and loved. And, I, and, and as I looked around yesterday at the Blessed Fest, that's what I saw. I saw my brother Aubrey sitting with, um, you know, somebody who was, who was there yesterday. And, you know, his whole posture was just love. I mean, that's Aubrey all the time. But he was just, he, he was just showing love. And I just saw everybody, you know, pastor dancing with people. Like, there, it wasn't just here. We offered you this nice day of food and, and, and health screenings and clothing. And, you know, come and get it. It was like, no, we're doing this with love. I see Lily was in the, in, the, in the clothing area, you know, just running around. I was trying to help translate in Spanish a little bit. It was terrible. This poor guy's like, leave me alone, this family. I was trying to help them. I kept holding up shirts for the sweet girl in Spanish. She was like, I know. And I was like, okay, sorry. You know, but, but we, were do, we were doing it with love. You know, there was just this, this presence of, of joy in what we were doing. And how do we multiply that for days, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's easy to, not easy, but it's easier sometimes to do that in, in a moment or in a day. But how do we carry that with us, right? Um, only through the strength of the Lord do we do that. And only when we think about how the Lord looks at us when we are asking or when we are needing something, right? He does that with an open heart and an open hand. So I want us to consider three takeaway messages from that passage in Matthew 26 and Deuteronomy 15. 7 through 11, um, most Christians, I think, when they read this passage in Matthew, there's kind of three things that they take away whether they know it or not. Um, and I think that it kind of can sometimes frame the way that we do ministry. Again, I'm not just talking about the church, our church, but the church in general. Um, the first point, and I'm going to go through and expound on each one, uh, that we can never end poverty, right? Again, this fatalistic view, um, that it is the role of Christians, not the government, to try to care for the poor. We hear that a lot, especially in the South. Whew. I couldn't believe when I moved down here, coming from a, 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 you know, a state like New York where there are a lot of organizations and systems in place, and then coming to the South. And while it is beautiful, the ways that the churches galvanize, beautiful sometimes, um, in the community and do things, that's not the only answer, right? We need policies. We need support. We need programming that is 
federally and state and locally funded to be able to do things well. Um, just look at, if you just look at, at, at the, the funding for education, it's like half the amount that is spent on students in the South compared to the North. I mean, how do you even make sense of that? Half the amount, right? And we, we brag it like we have low taxes here, but all of those things, you know, have an impact on our social welfare systems, right? Um, when I think about, and I talk to my friends in New York about the number of families that I work with who are living in their cars, and they're like, Again, not that this doesn't happen in other states, but they're just like, like why? Like, well, what about this program? No, we don't. No, we don't have that. What about this? No, you know. And so there's this need for some structural change, right? And so it is not an either or. It isn't the church or the government, but a both and. And I think we'll look at that in a minute when we when we examine these statistics. And then finally, that Jesus rather than the poor should be our concern. Again, a lot of believers draw that dichotomy of an either or or. And I say it's because of our heart of Jesus that we, that outpouring that he's given us, that's what we do for each other. So the next time, so, so first, the first idea um, that we can never end poverty, the next time someone says to you, the poor you will always have with you, or some version of that, you know, we can't really get rid of poverty, or oh, it's too overwhelming, or oh, the problem is too big, or, you know, it's just... People made mistakes, and, and that's just, you know, that's on them. Be sure to complete the sentence with some version of Deuteronomy 17, or 15. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Open wide your hand. Don't, don't, don't do this. You know, open wide your hand to the brother and the poor in your land. And what is your land? Your land is anything that the Lord places before you, right? Not just your little neighborhood, but wherever the Lord has you. Um, again, I think that complacency that we stop at the first point of the poor you will always have with you, uh, we don't move forward in that. We think about, we also think about, I think for some Christians, this kind of momentary idea. Um, you know, I listened to a podcast. My students will call me, I listened to a podcast or I went on a mission trip. So I'm, I'm good. I did that in high school. And you know, again, this is not, I'm not here to critique those different actions, but I said, on the mission trip, did you build relationships or did you examine systems in that country that were perpetuating inequality? Well, no, I didn't. I just took some selfies <laughs> with the kids okay, and gave them some candy. Well, okay, you know, what's, again, we, what is the heart behind it? Here's the action. What's the heart behind it? Jesus calls us into daily continuous service. It's not like a thing we just check off, like I've done my work for today or this year, and then, you know, I'm going to just go back to my daily life. I, I think some people think, like, they'll say, like, oh, that's what you're called into. It's like, we are all, 2,000 scriptures, my friends. We are all called into that. It is not an optional, you know, is that the calling on your life? Is that what God, you know, that God says that you think is important? It doesn't have to look the same. And I remember we talked about this in our class, and Drina brought it up so beautifully. Like, we don't, your ministry doesn't have to look like my ministry. It's not about uniformity, right? But it's about seeing this command as something that is deeply personal to the heart of God, and therefore we should care so much about it. Right? In our own ways. And if we're like, well, what does that look like? Right? Just ask God, how, does, how do you want to use me in this space? Right? Maybe I, need, maybe I do need to do a little bit more work on my, on my own of getting more educated before I jump into, you know, this community endeavor. That's okay. But don't just stay there. Right? Don't just stay 
listening to podcasts, reading books, and don't ever move your feet, right? It's, it's got to be a both and. So I want to offer us another really important thing as we think about this. And Pastor Chris uh, shared this with me this week when I was sharing about my, my, um, my sermon. He, he was talking and asking us to think a little bit more about the system of capitalism in our country and how it also reinforces for a lot of us to move away from the poor, right? Um, to judge and condemn, right? To kind of have that person-centered view. If, like, if that person made better choices, did this, did something different, then their circumstances would be changed. Again, I don't think in, in, in God's kingdom, it's not an either or. It's not like Jesus is saying, yeah, that person probably does, maybe needs to do something a little bit different, like we all do, right? We need to clean this part up of our life. We need to change the way we think. We need to, to, to make some better choices. All of us are called into individual actions. But God isn't looking at, at communities and saying, if all of them did this checklist of individual items, this system of inequality would be solved. There's just, there's just no way. He's, he's inviting all of us to come alongside, right? To look at the spheres and the systems that we're a part of. Maybe you work for an employer that could be challenged to offer grants in a way that would be life-giving to a community. Maybe you work for an employer who has a policy that they don't hire formerly incarcerated people. And you could take that on as your mantle in your space, right? Um, maybe you are, work for a wealthy employer. I, I, gotta, I have a great connection with this wealthy employer. Thank you, Jesus. I tell you, this was a total godsend. Somebody had, you know, just heard about the work I was doing in the community, and they said, there's, a, there's a, a corporation in Green Hills that has a lot of money, that builds really big houses, and the CEO, he likes to fund local projects. He gives money away to, to large organizations, but he also wants to know that his money is going directly to buy a pair of eyeglasses or pay for someone's dental bill. I'm like, well, this is exactly what I need. So I told them, y'all are going to be hearing from me about two to three times a week. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> so I always, I always preface my email to his secretary. I'm really sorry to bother you yet again with a request, but, you know, the needs keep pouring. But it's great. And it's so wonderful to think that somebody in that organization, right, this guy's got lots of money, somebody must have gotten into his ear and said, there's something we can do in the community, Right. So all of us are parts of organizations in some way, um, and some have more than others. Maybe that's not what the Lord is calling you into in your job. I'm not saying that, but it doesn't have to be outside of, of, of the sphere that we're a part of. We can start there and think about that. We can also think about the ways that maybe our organization does a day of service or something. We can think about the way that that's done. Is it with honoring the dignity of the community we're going into? Right? Do we, have we taken the time, and I tell my kids this all the time, have we taken the time to get to know the communities, right? Do we know the history of the community in the city, right? When we look at why does this neighborhood look like this and this neighborhood looks like this, we got to do that back work, right? That historical archival digging so that when we send people out into a school or an organization to do an event, they're not just walking away with their stereotypes or biases reinforced, Right? That first slide that I showed you about all those by, we shouldn't do a, an act of community service and come away feeling like that list still applies, right? Where we still feel like people are made. You know, we should come away transformed. And so maybe it's about even looking at the things that are done in your organization that are not done well, right? That are not done with the heart and dignity of people in mind. 
So point two, that it's the role of Christians, not the government, to care for the poor. 11.6% of the total population living in poverty right now. And I want to read you, um, oh, again, this didn't come out so great. But this is something I showed all my students. This is so powerful, y'all. This is, these are the federal poverty guidelines. So you've got family size, you've got yearly income, and then you've got uh, what, I, what the government deems as what really need, not the government, what, what researchers would say, this is actually what a family that size would need to make to have basic needs met. And I would argue that even that category of basic needs is way, way underrepresented, you know, way under. But this, I'm just giving you what kind of the research has. Um, I want to just tell you this, that the, that the, the Census Bureau, the, the, the official poverty measure that they use has remained virtually unchanged since the mid-1960s. Think about that. It's calculated by comparing pre-tax income against a threshold set at three times the cost of minimum, the minimum food diet in 1963. Like, I mean, just, we hear that and we think, how is that possible? How is that possible that individuals working in these organizations are not, like, how, does this, how is this allowed to perpetuate? I also thought that this statistic was interesting when we think about those numbers. Um, on that last slide, it, it had, you know, that in Nashville, I think it would take $77,000 for a family of four to live, you know, with their needs met. And even at that, at that doubling the federal poverty threshold, it was at about 60000 That's That's if we, you know, that 60000 is what we said, okay, if we double that, you could maybe make things work on that. But in Nashville, we're saying it's at least 77000 you know, that's, again, we look at, the, at those numbers and we think, think about families who are, who, are, who are benefiting from some of those safety net programs. It's life-giving. It's literally life-giving. It's a matter of, do I eat or not eat? Do I, do I have, you know, lights on? It's not, am I getting filet mignon and salmon? Like, come on, friends. You know, and, and sometimes I'll hear people say that to me, like, well, people are just having more babies so that they can get more welfare. Well, the numbers don't pan out. You're not getting like all this money. People might, I don't care if somebody says that to you who's just had another baby. It actually is not true, right, when we look at the numbers. So the data has to tell a story, and we have to know this. So when we look at why those programs like Head Start, like food stamps, like Medicaid, are so life-giving, right, they're, so, they're, they're transformative, it's because of these numbers. It's because of how low and how dated um, these measures are. If we actually caught up to where we should be, even in the last year, this should have changed with the, with the price of food, right? Can you imagine the millions more people who then would be on the receiving end of social welfare benefits? And our government does not want that. They're trying to make it more and more difficult for people to even get on anything, let alone let more people um, benefit from those programs. The Washington Post and the Kaiser Family Foundation asked 1,686 American adults to answer the question um, around uh, poverty and, and the role of faith. And they found that religion is a significant predictor of how Americans perceive poverty. Christians, especially white evangelical Christians, are much more likely than non-Christians to view poverty as a result of individual failings. There's a strong Christian impulse to understand poverty as deeply rooted in morality, often as the Bible makes clear in unwillingness to work and bad financial decisions or in broken family structures, right? We look at just those 
ish, th those causes or those reasons as being the sole um, indicator. In a fallen world, there is poverty, a lot of people say, but again, that doesn't uh, take away from Jesus's command to act. Um, another scholar who has worked on this research added, uh, the sins that cause a person to be in poverty may be the sins of others, not of the person who is poor. And he said that conservative Christians need to acknowledge that more. The sins of others, not the sins of the people who are poor causing this, right? Those are those systemic failures, the ways that other people, other individuals, other you know, organizations have let people down. That, that sin, that collective sin, right, that has led to outcomes for that individual, not necessarily just the sins or, or actions of that person who is struggling. And that was from a conservative evangelical scholar who said that. I was like, all right now, that's good. You can acknowledge that, right? He can acknowledge that. Come on. Um, so right now I want to um, turn our attention to a wonderful video. And the, the person in this video is joining us here. This is a wonderful uh, mom who I am just really blessed to know and be in community with. And we met probably three or four years ago um, in a mom's group that I was uh, helping to facilitate in the Edge Hill community, right where we were yesterday. And um, I had asked a couple of moms, just because, again, I think stories are so powerful. I could tell you a million stories about the amazing women, my friends that I get to work with, but I thought, wouldn't it be beautiful to hear directly from a mom? And I didn't know she was going to be here. I probably would have just called her up on stage to come, but, um, Huh? I know, you could still come. Uh, but we'll, we'll just watch a short video just to kind of illuminate some of the ways that um, systems and the sins of other people have caused uh, families, single-parent families, to struggle. Thank you, Aubrey, for... Um, I, live, I do live paycheck to paycheck. And it's very hard being a single mother of three children. Um, because everything financially, emotionally, everything falls on me. Um, so if I don't do it, it doesn't get done. Um, so I'm very grateful to have ran across Miss Mona um, because she really helped me um, in, a, in a very trying time in, in my life. Um, and I say trying because, you know, the Lord, the Lord puts us through certain things to make us stronger, whether we, we see it or we don't. Um, and so I know that at that time, at the time that I was going through, like, you know, I had lost my car. Um, my children had missed countless of days of school. Um, I didn't have family help. I don't have family help. I don't have a, a, a good support system at all. And that makes it worse as well when you don't have a good support system. So being a single mom on top of trying to find a job and then when you get the job now you need you know daycare and um lord forbid school is out but if school is in then you need aftercare um or before care um and it, it and it's, it's very hard trying to find the resources that are available i think lastly i'm going to speak on um, the church community um i feel like that churches need to be more involved in the community um, because you never know anyone's story. Um, you never know how you can assist. It might not be financially. Someone might just need a listening ear. Um, someone might be suffering from depression, such as, you know, such as me, I suffer from depression. Um, so 
it, it just might be that that small of a token and and but small goes a long way Big, little goes a long way um and we just need to like you know just remember to love be kind and you know just be kind to one another and help each other out um no matter what and just love unconditionally So as we close, I just want to leave us with um, four kind of things to think about um, as we think about the weeks ahead and, and what we take from um, our experience yesterday, if you were at Bless Fest, and just what, what is at, the, at a core foundation of this church. Um, again, this church is not just about the, the, the moments of, you know, doing life well with people. It really is something that is such a deeply woven through the fabric of people's lives and doing it with compassion and love, which is just one of the many reasons I'm so grateful to be here. But I want to offer us four L words to think about. Again, this is the teacher in me. To listen, learn, lament, and lead. Seek to hear rather than be heard. Seek to understand rather than be understood. Proximity builds empathy Distance builds suspicion. So when we have a, a, a chasm between us and whoever it is that, that God has placed on our heart to work with or to connect with, we can come up with lots of stereotypes and biases and, and, and ill-informed, misinformed notions. Right? But when we move into proximity, when we move into connection, right, those things very fast, very uh, quickly dissipate and we begin to... Um, find through relationship and that mutual aid um, that we can bear each other's burdens. Right? As we learn, while we cannot stand in another person's shoes, we can learn from their experience in this world. If we take a humble, teachable position, it validates different lived experiences. There's a whole um, frame of uh, research around cultural humility. I wish I had time to go into it today, but it, you know, it talks about what it, when, we, when we use that frame of walking alongside people, how do we do that well, right? It truly means leaning in and listening and learning, not from our assumed version of their story, but letting people's stories inform us, right? Lamenting, right? I think that we should feel, um, and I don't mean burdened in a way that we're not casting our cares on the Lord, but we should feel... Um, a deep sadness or, or just a feeling of um, wanting to do more. Like, like if our hearts are not moved towards a posture of lament when we are leaning into um, communities and people whose life experiences are different from ours, we should not walk away um, just feeling like we did when we went to that, you know, engaged in that encounter. We should feel... Like, we want to do more, and we want to learn more, and um, I pray, maybe that's your prayer, is that God would soften your heart towards that. Maybe that's just what it is, that, you know, your heart is maybe built up some resistance um, or some layers, but I know for me, I mean, I've been engaged in this work since 1996. I, I don't, it doesn't ever become, like, easier <laughs> for me. It's not like I'm, you know, it, it becomes such a deep burden and in a way that um, I just want to keep being propelled towards action. And I hope that that's the case for all of us, that it, you know, 
we sing a song that says, break my heart for what breaks yours. Like this is something that does break the Lord's heart. And so it should break our heart too and compel us to action. Not sympathy, but empathy, right? Not just pity, but moving in, in, in uh, commitment to better outcomes. And then after we've listened, learned, lamented, then we can lead. And this is that piece of the we do, right? Or the you do as well. You know, what are ways that we can lead on this issue in our workplace, in our community? Maybe it's bringing together people in our neighborhood to talk about ways that we can do um, service well, right? That we can connect. I mean, I know even in, in Williamson County and Franklin where I live, there are pockets of under-resourced communities that may be getting some services, but there's ways that, that we can have deeper fellowship. And I was thinking about that yesterday, even at the Bless Fest with... Um, I saw more Latino families, and I thought, next year, I want to get Spanish-speaking staff to come, you know? And, and just, like, what are the ways that we can, wherever God has placed us, think more intentionally about doing the work well, right? Maybe it looks different in reaching that community than this community, but we can do that well, and we can lead in that way. It's, it's not a, for me, it's not an optional thing, right? It shouldn't be, I have the option to opt out <laughs> of this calling, right? We've got 2,000 scriptures, so we're, he's calling us into it. Um, and maybe you're at the listening stage right now. Maybe you're just at the you know, perspective of just listening and learning around you, but you've got to move eventually to the leading, right? That's what he's asking us to do. So finally, I want to um, challenge us with a question. I remember a pastor years ago asked us this. Um, he asked us to think about what is our holy discontent? A holy discontent is when you experience an uneasy spirit about the brokenness of this world, which aligns with the heart of God and spurs us to take positive action to change the world. I'll read that again. A holy discontent is when you experience an uneasy spirit about the brokenness of this world, which aligns with the heart of God, and it spurs us to take positive action to change in the world. There's nothing that would break our heart that isn't in Scripture that... that doesn't break Jesus' heart, right? Maybe that's the incarcerated. Maybe that's, you know, working with single mom. Maybe that's around immigration issues. All of those things are things that Jesus cares so deeply about. So again, it's not something that we can just think is an optional request. So as you go through um, this week, I want you to think about how to be people who rise up to show compassion. How are you there to answer the cries for help? Ask God to place people before you that may just need a word of encouragement. It may not be that there's some financial pieces we heard or some resource, but maybe it's just a word. Um, let us not see this as just occasional or, or, or out of the ordinary, but let us see it as a direct outpouring of the love that God gives to us daily and how we take that tangible love and turn it into action for our neighbor. May we not ignore dismiss or downplay the spirit that the Lord has placed within each of us. And let us think about ways, as pastor reminds us, to glorify the Lord and edify the body. So thank you all so much. I'll close us in a quick prayer. Oh, are you not closing prayer? All right. Thank you. Thank you all. As you remain standing, with a benediction, before we do that, you are about to begin, or you're in the process of beginning a 501c3, mm -hmm. correct? Amen. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
So it's taken me a while to come up with a name, but y'all are the first to hear it. So it's going to be called the Mother's Collective, um, and the, the Mother stands for um, Moms Offering Transformative Healing, Emotional Resources, and Support. Um, and it is not just for single moms. That's primarily um, the audience that I'm blessed to walk alongside with and, and connect with, but you know, I work with, with dads and grandmas and all sorts of people. But if you're interested in getting involved, um, we already provide lots of resources for families, furniture, clothing, and some of y'all have already, so thank you so much. Um, I'm looking around, just amazing support. Um, but also, maybe that's not what you have, maybe just mentoring and, and again, that mutual aid, maybe it's connecting with, you know, using your story to bless another parent who's also in the midst of parenting stuff, right? A lot of times with, with my wonderful friends that I journey alongside, we'll just call each other and, you know, I'll say, oh man, my kid this week. And they say, oh, my kid this week. Right? We're, we're just doing life together. We're bearing each other's burdens. So maybe that's what the Lord has called you to. Maybe it's not resources, but maybe it's just time and being, being that person that can, um, you know, provide that support. So feel free to talk to me if it's not this kind of work, but something else. You know, Jermaine and I are connected with lots of great organizations in the city, um, and I hope that we can all just continue to grow in that way in our church family. Amen. And um, the elders and I will meet probably next month and begin to finalize the budget for the coming year. And in the midst of that, we <coughs> talk about the various missionaries and organizations we support. And, uh, and I'm quite sure your home church is not going to let you do this without us sowing into you monthly. Thank you. That's right. Amen, brothers. Amen. I don't mean to put y'all on the spot. Um, wow. Resources. When we talk about the poor, many times it's, we talk about money. As my sister said, it's more than money. We're talking about people who lack access to various resources how we come alongside to help provide those resources. There's a lady here today that I saw you hug. Sister Sarah Beth, can you? Hey, sis. Um, precious lady who's also doing ministry in this community who comes from a family um, that really your family is the reason why I lost my record contract when I came to Nashville because they were praying for God to raise up a black man in the community. So um, it was your mom and dad. Mm -hmm. And when my brother Harold came to town, how many years ago you come to town, Harold? 13, 15? 19? 19 years ago, um, having been um, an ex-con, having been someone delivered from drug use and drug abuse, needing a new start. Um, not just a job, but a living wage. Right to be able to make it. And my brother doesn't look like what he's been through. But it was your father in the local church that heard about the need of my brother and got my brother employed gainfully and helped him out in so many ways. Wow. And now his brother's married, doing great. And, so great. But it was the body of Christ. It was the body of Christ. So I thank you. Matter of fact, Sarah Beth, come on up. I want you to close in prayer. Come on. I want you to close in prayer. Been knowing this girl for a while. And her family, they just don't talk it. They walk it. And the legacy continues with you. So it's good to see you. 
That's my brother right there. Can you pray for us, please? Thank you, Lord. God, you are so good. And you care for us. For each of us, where we are. I thank you for this word this morning. I thank you that you care about people who are poor, who don't have their basic needs, and um, and for those who are living lonely and in dark places without community. And um, I just thank you for Mona, for her wisdom, um, just for the practical things that she said. I want to pray that this would light a fire in all of our hearts, that we would seek out the ways that we can serve in our communities, that we would look for communities beyond our own, um, that have people that just need to be loved. They need to hear, they need to hear about the hope that you that you offer them. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, thank you for this church. I thank you for Pastor and Rena, the way that they have for so long um, taught these things and shown a way and encouraged and loved and created community. I pray that you would continue to bless this place. I pray you'd bless Mona for what she brought today. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.